Hey, this is Jim Goodwin from The Call, and you're listening to the True Tunes Podcast. Listen to better music and listen to music better. Welcome to True Tunes at 45 RPM, the short-form version of the ongoing conversation you'll hear on the True Tunes podcast and in the digital pages at truetunes.com. And now, your host, John J. Thompson. When one of the greatest, most criminally overlooked bands of all time announces that they have found some lost tapes and are running a Kickstarter campaign to finance a special release of these previously unheard gems, it's probably wise to be skeptical. As our guest today says, outtakes are usually outtakes for a reason. But this time, this time we have reason to be excited. For people like us, in places like this, we need all the hope. John J. Thompson, and you're not likely to find very many bigger fans of The Call than me. When I first heard Michael Bean's booming yet empathetic voice delivering profoundly spiritual but never religious lyrics buttressed by the smart, driving, sweeping sounds that resulted from Scott Music's drumming, Tom Ferrier's guitars, Bean's bass, and Jim Goodwin's piano, organ, and synth, I was hooked. As you've heard me say before, The Call was a standard-setting group. They are a huge reason I'm even here. Hopefully, you've already heard the episode we released featuring the 1994 interview I conducted with Bean. If not, please listen soon. But when I heard that the surviving members of the call had unearthed previously unreleased and in some cases unfinished songs and was in the process of completing them for a special release some 14 years after Bean's passing, I was thrilled. When the band reached out to see if we'd be interested in having a chat with one of the members about it, and to let you, our dear listeners, hear some of the music, of course I jumped at the chance. I was an angry man, I was a troubled child. You came a great long distance, I barely did a mile. I'm still the same poor fool, you know me from my Today, I'm excited to welcome Jim Goodwin, keyboardist and occasional co-writer for The Call, to the True Tunes podcast for a special extended 45 RPM episode of the show. 
Jim will take us behind their scene beyond dreams to talk about what it was like to write with Michael Bean, to join this band as a young man in the 80s, and how this miraculous new collection came together. And we'll debut some clips of new material along the way. And make no mistake, we definitely have an agenda here. It is our sincere hope that this special show will inspire you, yes, you, to join in and support the band's Kickstarter campaign while there's still time. Obviously, these shows linger out there forever, so if you're hearing this after February 22nd of 2024, you'll have to check with the band to see if they happen to have any copies left, and good luck with that. Oh, and our Patreon members will get to hear my complete conversation with Jim and see the whole thing on video. The conversation and the music all takes flight right after we take care of just a little bit of housekeeping. Hey, this is Mark Feldbush, and I'm a supporter of the True Tunes podcast. I've been reading True Tunes since it was a print journal and first on the interwebs in the late 90s. When the podcast became a reality, well, I knew I wanted to be a part of this ongoing conversation. I'm glad to say that folks like me and many others support the podcast with monthly donations of five, 10, even $20 that help to cover the costs of producing and hosting the show. As a thanks for our support, we get early access to episodes and high-quality lossless WAV files of each episode that we get to download. We also have occasional Zoom meetups, some special live streams, discounts on TrueTunes swag, and a whole lot more. You can join me and the other patrons by visiting patreon.com slash TrueTunes, or you can find the link on the show notes page. If an ongoing patronage thing isn't quite right for you, but you'd like to give a tip to help with the costs associated with this show, you can find links for that at the show notes page. Thanks for listening. And we're back. I caught up with Jim Goodwin from his home in California. So join us now in the virtual True Tunes interview suite. Thanks for taking some time to uh, to touch base with us, and and what a fun, surprising project! Tell me about the the process and the kind of how it was precipitated and how it came together. And um, well, the story it really is is kind of Tom Ferrier's story because he he was a you know kind of a bit of a pack rat. He always saved a lot of like anything he had of the band. He tapes cassettes, anything. He came across, uh, I think it was a tape that was one of the songs that the guys did as a demo after I left the band and before they did the Michael Bean solo album. So he found this tape. So he called Ralph Patlin because Ralph was the guitar player that joined the band when I left the band. The last couple of years I was in the band, Ralph was our guitar tech. And so when I left the band, they, you know, Michael said, well, I don't, you know, I don't mind, like, let's have Ralph join the band and let's, let's just be guitars. So Tom called Ralph and said, Hey, you know, what do you remember about doing those sessions? Cause it was in San Rafael and, um, Ralph had stayed in touch and I think had done quite a bit of work cause he became a studio engineer producer guy for his career. 
had stayed in touch with this guy, Joel, at that studio in San Rafael. And so Ralph said, well, let me see if, you know, if Joel might have like those, you know, he might have something. So they contacted Joel and Joel said, yeah, I've got dat recordings of mixes. And at that point, Tom thought, okay, look, we got five really good songs here, the none of which had keyboards on them. So Tom put it out there to us, like, hey, I've got these songs and what, you know, does anybody else have anything? And I said, well, we've got that song that I wrote with Michael for Into the Woods was a song called Welcome to My World. And we had just gotten it back from Electro. And when they gave us the stuff back, they sent that that song was part of the what they returned. So we had a dat mix of that song, which was technically it was done and it was ready to go on the album. But part of the reason why it didn't go on the album was I remember I never thought it was done. It just didn't sound finished to me. It was missing. It was just everything was moving in the same direction. It was just kind of one dimensional. And I just I just never felt like it was done. So when I realized, you know, when I remembered the song, I was like, oh, I, I remember this song. And it, it still doesn't sound finished. But the idea now was that we were going to go in and finish it. And Scott found a bunch of tapes of songs that they had done before they were the call. So late yeah. 70s, they were a band called Airtight, but they decided, you know, let's just get a record deal and do, you know, become something new. And so they just stripped it down to just the three of them, guitar, bass, and drums, because they knew everybody was doing all these elaborate demos and sending them to record companies and trying to get record deals. And then the record company would say, yeah, this is great. We're going to re-record everything. And so they thought, well, let's not waste a lot of time and money on a big production. So we were able to add some guitars and piano and organ, electric piano. We added sax to one song. The, the song we added sax to was one that Michael had done with some other guys that were friends of, of, of the band for all along. One of them was Garth Hudson. So Garth was playing organ. There was another guy playing piano, Michael playing bass and singing. And I think Tom Spurlock was playing on it. The only song that had keyboards on it, other than the one that Garth played on, I got to play sax on that. So I was in the studio last year, you know, recording saxophone to a band that had Garth Hudson in it. And I thought, okay, this is like, I can't even, it was some of the most fun and nostalgic and, you know, powerful, emotional feelings were going on because there was Michael's voice booming in the room with us, you know, and sounding like he was right there. I mean, it was beautiful. So all the songs that they did before I was in the band had no keyboards. And then there were the five from the sessions after I left the band, they didn't have keyboards. So the main thing we had to do was record keyboards. I, I didn't know the songs. I'd never heard them. So, you know, I got them obviously a few weeks before we went and recorded, but, you know, so I could learn them and kind of figure out what I was going to do. But 
and then you know playing with Garth and you know, just all that stuff. It, it was it was really like a dream, you know, and just being back with Tom and Scott and Ralph and it was just magic. If I could put time in a beer bottle, like the songs were really good really strong and like my song welcome to my world it it came out exactly like i wanted it like how i always thought it should be it, it just was perfect like i like it was everything about it went so well that i kind of kept waiting for like you know there to be something bad about it you know <laughs> but it wasn't it's just a an incredible time and we felt like we had something that you know, we were all excited about it. We were excited for our fans to hear it. You know, a lot of times people put out lost tapes and it's, it's the reason they're lost is because they weren't great, you know? <laughs> right. And in this case, these were like some of the best songs ever because both the, the, the handful of demos that for the first call album, and then those demos for the Michael Bean album that didn't get used Part of the reason they didn't get used, because in both cases, it was almost a year later that they actually started making the record because they had to go through the contracts and get it all nailed down. You know, had to get signed and then make it official and then, you know, figure out what they were doing. Well, during all that time, you know, Michael was such a prolific writer that he was writing all this new music. And a year later, he was done. Those He'd moved on from those songs. Right. So, you know, here they were. And it wasn't because they weren't good. It was just because... You know, he had moved on. He had new stuff. The country song, you know, oh, yeah. Beautiful Lie is the one I yeah. feel like it's kind of a kind of a uh, Van Morrison kind of song. And it's obviously very reminiscent of what's happened to you, right. which is on, you know, Red Moon. And that that's possibly a reason why Michael just never pursued it was because he preferred once he had written uh, what's happened to you. He, he may have just preferred that. I thought this mm -hmm. is the first song I was really trying to write. It was you know, a, probably a, a, to him, probably a more powerful lyric. Though night had chill fallen, we pretended to see. But I never saw you, and you never saw me. No glow from a warm heart, no stars in our sky. Years put him into a beautiful I was just really lucky and I didn't have any idea at the time. Like it wasn't until Michael passed in 2010. So I left the band in 1990 and 
So that had been 20 years. And we got back together in 96 and did To Heaven and Back. And it was really fun getting back together with the guys and going in the studio. It was wonderful. And it was kind of a one-off thing. I was really busy raising my kids in Los Angeles. And so it was it was a great you know, opportunity to get back together with the guys and make a really powerful record. And I loved every minute of it, but I knew that wasn't going to go anywhere. And so then we all went back on, you know, about our business. We all went our separate ways again. But then when, when Michael passed, I wanted to say something at the service. So I started listening to the songs again that we wrote together. And I started, that was the first time I really, really heard them. I think like, it had been long enough, and I was in a much more mature place in my life. And it, it that's when it hit me. Like, I just was like, man, I was so lucky to be taken in by this band and then to be taken, you know, kind of under Michael's wing. Those guys were all 10 years older than I was. So mm. I was kind of like the kid in the band, you know, and I roomed with Michael. It was wonderful because I got to know him so well. And he basically tolerated me because I was just this young kind of wild guy having a great time in the rock and roll business. And Michael was extremely mature <laughs> at that point. <laughs> so, you know, there were there were some really great moments where I remember there was one night we were in the hotel late at night after a gig and he was on a roll, was writing lyrics and he was working on, I think, the lyrics for I Don't Wanna. And he was just bouncing them off me. He would just sing them, and then he'd say, "What do you th is that like? Am, I'm, I'm, you know, do I need something? You know." He would just like throw these things at me, and then like ask me, like, you know, what do you th like? Yeah, is there? And it was really mostly him just thinking out loud. But you can imagine, for me, it was an amazing. Like these are the things I remembered when I looked back. I was like, I took that totally for granted when it was happening. I was probably thinking, hey, he's kind of keeping me up all night. Like, wait, what am I doing here? You know? <laughs> but. Uh, and because he was not just any writer. I mean, the guy clearly is, I think, is one of the greatest rock and roll lyricists that ever came down the road. I mean, I mean, the, the, the people that praised his work are the testament to that. I mean, it, you know, Peter Gabriel and the band and Bono and Simple Minds and all these. Right. I mean, Michael was a rare talent. And here I was just along for the ride, you know. So looking back, I realized how lucky I was. And that was, at the time, I had no idea. Here I was now, you know, 20 years later, revisiting these songs and realizing that, boy, any co-writer would give anything to fall into a situation like that. Michael wrote 99.9% .9 of the lyrics. I, I, he actually used one line of mine in I Still Believe. We were in New York at the Mayflower and getting ready to record. And we were just 
resting on the beds in the room and just kind of like almost, you know, he was working on lyrics and I was probably just resting. And he said, hey, I, hey what do you think? I need to, I, I got nothing for this line here. So there were there were a few moments like that that were um, really special. But otherwise, I would just write this music by myself because most of the time I was living in Los Angeles and the band was in Santa Cruz, and I would record songs, just instrumental songs, and just send them to him. And every once in a while, one would just jump out at him. Like I remember, he he called me when I sent him Jealousy, and he said he said, "Oh man," he said, "I've got," he said, "You are gonna die." He said, "I've got a song." for this that is coming together so fast and it's it's so good and you know to this day that's one of my it was always one of my favorite songs to play live and it's one of my favorite songs that Michael ever wrote let alone you know one that I got to be a part of so that was kind of really for me it was that simple it was like just sending the stuff and then we'd get together to rehearse as a band you know we'd work on the arrangements and kind of start figuring out you know dicky would or tom would um we all call him dicky but uh tom ferrier would he'd start you know creating his guitar parts and i think in retrospect i think michael had even mentioned that because when he was working with his son rob you know the right when he died you know he was there touring with him as their sound man and kind of producing him and stuff and working with him all the time and i think he had mentioned something to rob at one time that he kind of felt bad that the band didn't get more credit for the writing because everybody was writing their parts and and it was it was more collaborative than he realized probably you know the credit was given but that was one of the great things about the band was that we just had the freedom to bring our parts to the song and it was a sound that came out of the four of us and mm -hmm. it, and Michael I remember said at one point that um he told i think he told tom he said he said you know this this is my dream band like everybody brings their thing and it's always good and we just do something together that is not going to happen with different people It's a wonderful thing if you can be in a band that really is a collaborative thing that 
that just is it just feels like it's clearly so much more than any one of the individuals even when you've got someone like michael who is clearly so much of the the, the being the front man and the singer and the the you know the the primary writer and everything he he really appreciated the contribution by all the band members and the and the chemistry and the and the the alchemy and everything of of what was going on so I think we all felt really lucky that that was that we were able to find each other and have the run that we had and we were all you know devastated when we lost Michael because then we knew for sure we were never going to play again until Robbie decided to front the band. I wanted to end with uh, the song What a Ride and just have you talk a little bit about you know, how perfect that that song is one of the songs that you guys can go back and revive because it's it's almost like like somewhere back years ago you said oh, let's write a song that 20 years 30 years from now we can go back and reflect on this this story we had but when you when you found that song and you listened to What a Ride and you realized you were going to do that what kind of emotions did that bring up you know, what, what did it feel like to think about a lyric like that? What a ride! Well, it was it was fun, and it 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 was so serendipitous. And I got to give credit to Tom because really the whole project was his baby. Like once he realized it was possible that we could do this, he just wasn't going to let it go. And he he did everything he had to do to make sure that we got it all together. And then even when it came to like sequencing the songs, he said, "Look." He said, we've got the opening song is Welcome to My World, and we've got the ending song, which is What a Ride. And so he had this whole vision, and of course, it made perfect sense. So yeah, when we were, I remember even playing on that song, because I, like I said, I didn't know the songs until just you know shortly before we recorded, I had gotten them and listened to them and learned them and this and that. And and our kind of thing too was we never wanted to be over rehearsed and over prepared because we always kind of counted on those spontaneous moments in the studio. In fact, Garth Hudson actually had a name for it. He said, "Well, a name." He said a phrase. He said, "You never want to lose your amateur standing." And his <laughs> point was, you don't want to sound like a slick studio yeah. guy. So I remember on that song in particular, it was just it's such a joyous vibe. And so playing the organ on it was just like incredibly fun. Yeah. I mean, it was joy. I mean, that's yeah. all, like that's the one word right there that just yeah. it was joyous. And it was, but it was also because it was being back together with my bandmates and being back with Michael and being back into the music and back in the studio and you know it doesn't matter if you're 65 you start doing that you're pretty sure you're 25 again right and that's a great feeling no matter what like that there's nothing bad about that feeling right so yeah that song was just joy 
Thanks, Jim. And thanks to Dan Russell for helping us to set all this up. You can find the link to their Kickstarter campaign on the show notes page for this episode, or just go to Kickstarter and search The Call New Album. I know I don't usually do soapbox moments on these 45 RPM episodes, but before we sign off here, I wanted to just riff a little bit on a couple of things these lost tapes have had me thinking about. Lost tapes. What an image. Tapes of any kind are obsolete at this point, but lost ones? How truly sad. But just thinking about the fact that these songs have been sitting, stored on bits of oxide and digital ones and zeros, in boxes and closets for decades, is pretty amazing. At some point in time, these songs were demos. They were future plans. They were blueprints for houses yet to be built. Then they were current. They were in the moment. They were right now, cutting edge, bleeding and alive. Then, for one reason or another, they were set aside, in lieu of other great songs or other plans. Maybe someone thought they'd get around to them eventually, but there they sat, in the dark, nothing but memories, bound up with unrealized potential, until the boxes were found and opened. And then the magic began. Players in their 60s and 70s started jamming with their 20 and 30-something selves, and their fallen comrade, and the sparks flared up again. And I don't know about you, but as I listen, I feel transported. I'm 14, or 19, or 23. I'm at the Metro in Chicago watching this band blow the roof off the place, and my knee doesn't hurt. My back isn't sore. I'm with my band playing I Still Believe and dreaming the biggest of dreams, catching the tiniest glimpses of what grace can do when we let it out of the box. Oh, what a ride indeed. It's amazing how love and art just won't let beautiful things stay in the grave. Okay, I'm stepping off my soapbox now. The runout groove is coming, and that means it's time to go. If you dig the show, please subscribe and spread the word. Also, please leave us a review and a rating at Apple Podcasts. Subscribe to our email list at truetunes.com. Follow us on Facebook at TrueTunes Now, and find and follow our weekly Spotify gallery stage mixtape. And you can support the show through our patreon.com slash truetunes community or via a one-time tip linked on the show notes page. Tell your friends about the show, post it on your socials, and let us know what you think. True Tunes at 45 RPM is produced by John J. Thompson and Bruce A. Brown for Gyroscope Productions and is intended for the private use of our listening audience. The contents are protected by U.S. copyright law and are the intellectual property of Gyroscope Productions, with the exception of songs or clips that are from previously copywritten materials. Everything on this episode is used by permission or under fair use provisions. Thanks for listening. Cheers. We'll see you next time.